Hey, Aladeep, uh, thank you for coming in. You're a noted uh, Indian American computer scientist. You're co-founder and CEO of Life Plus. You have a remarkable career, including in the semiconductor industry, uh, for example, Intel Corporation and so on. So thank you for coming in and sharing so many of your insights with our audience. Stephen, thank you very much for having me. And I really appreciate and, and feel honored to be appearing on your interviews. Really appreciate so my audience uh, tends to be actually CEOs, board members, co-founders, and founders. Uh, in fact, it always tends to be those are the top three positions. Then I have like engineers and professors and students and so on. Um, but everyone is always interested. And that is, what are those inflection points in your life that made this wonderful career you have today or created this wonderful person you are today? <laughs> That's a very interesting question indeed. So thinking about the inflection points, the first inflection point or the moment that comes to my mind is when I was in high school and we were in a physical science class and um, we had a, a high school teacher that we all very liked him I mean, because he was very, he used to surprise us almost in every class showing something new. And one day he walked into the class with a small teeny chip in his hand and that was the first time the entire class, a, a class of 40 students, saw an electronic chip physically. And I'm, you know, mind you, this was uh, in the mid of 1990s. So, you know, the students, high school students were not very familiar with chips and motherboards and those kind of stuff yet, and especially in India. So he showed that chip and he said that almost all complex mathematics that you guys have learned so far and even beyond this little thing can compute them not even in seconds in milliseconds so even before you blink your eyes it will give you the results that was really an inflection moment in in my life i thought that and then i still vividly remember his next comment he said that we all worship god but think about the people who built it won't you think that they are almost close to God? Because they could they could innovate and build such a teeny um, physical object that can do such a humongous amount of mathematical computation within like a, even before a blink of an eye. And then I started feeling like, man, I have to get into this space, try to get close to those people who who have invented this and who have done such a miraculous thing and then you know over the time over the next years as i graduated from high school got into the engineering program got into computer science slowly i got kind of aligned myself in that path and eventually you know landed into a a, a company that is considered one of the you know founding fathers of the semiconductor world the intel corporation so that was one inflection moment. Uh, the second inflection moment came when I was at Synopsys and um, uh, you know, this was a personal moment actually. So I already completed my studies. I was working at Synopsys, which is also um, a, a very deeply aligned electronic design automation company. And um, uh, so what happened is, is very personal. My grandma was particularly sick in India and and she was not sick because of any debilitating illness like cancer or anything she had asthma primarily and few kind of um, blood parameters up and down but what was happening is she was going back and forth hospital and home uh, in 2012 
and my dad's are three brothers my youngest uncle is a cardiologist who used to practice in new york that time now he's in florida he and i had multiple conversations and he was in a great dilemma whether he should go back every time when she was hospitalized which was not absolutely possible given the the job that he had in hand at the same time he was feeling like i don't have the information the basic information that i can effectively communicate with my my friends and colleagues and counterparts in india who were taking care of my grandma so that led me thinking that i'm quite sure the biosensors have advanced to a point that we can easily monitor multiple of these core biomarkers in real time and and send it to the internet layer then anyone anywhere can access that data and that can tremendously you know uh, expand the scope of medical treatment for for people from every corner of the world so i started looking into this problem uh, you know what are the sensors available i slowly started speaking with few people like i i found an uh, another guy again an electronic engineer from um, from broadcom so i i you know we, we we got a good alignment then i also found one of my uh, phd days buddies he was teaching at university of maryland he also started a lab in um, in university of maryland on advanced biosensing and and smart sensing so i spoke with him he was also interested in joining this effort then we found another doctor who did his undergrad in electrical engineering from northwestern so so he's a doctor engineer <laughs> that way so we formed a, a small clique a group of four or five people and we started looking into different sensors eventually landed into uh, the optical sensor that you know we'll we'll talk about so that was another inflection moment that how can technology really aid the advancement of treatment of people at every corner of the world and make it very simple and make it accessible affordable to every doctor in the other parts of the world so these were the two moments that i could i could uh, recount so let me reflect on what you're saying then uh, in high school you had a a teacher and this teacher actually showed you a semiconductor chip and that teacher uh, gave this narrative that this chip could do amazing computations and then in a fraction of a second and something that would take much longer for a human being to do and that that was a a defining moment for you. And, and actually that resonates with me too, because I used to work uh, hard wiring logic and then work with vacuum tubes and then transistors. <laughs> and and uh, and then be, those became chips because you could hand wire gates into uh, uh, different logic circuits and combine them. And then of course you got into integrated circuits where you had a combination of these and could have much more complexity. So I understand that history. So I can see how that could be a defining moment for you. And then you end up working at Intel, which, uh, you know, really is is the sort of the flagship corporation for taking uh, transistors into and into integrated circuits into large scale integration and then into uh, CMOS circuits and and also into uh, processors. Right. Uh, from some of the early uh, 8080A processors to the to other processors, to the ones you see today, which are combining billions and billions of elements onto, onto a chip. And then, so that, that experience then led you to realize when you had 
a family member with with this health history and saying, you know what, maybe you can do something with sensors and sensors are based on these chip technologies. And that led you to say, you know what, maybe I can start a company in this area and working with colleagues who have this kind of background you have of interest in semiconductor technology. And as you mentioned, when your colleagues has a medical and engineering background. So I, I can see this journey <laughs> of, of then getting into translational science. And what I mean by that is something that's very practical. So, um, so you left Intel and after you um, worked with these other companies, uh, like how long ago did you decide to then start this company called Life Plus? Uh, before answering that question, I wanted to tell you a couple of goosebump moments I had at Intel. I was, uh, I was, uh, uh, my, my office was in the Robert Noyes building, the headquarter building in Santa Clara. And I was fortunate enough to walk into Gordon Moore's office one day. And, and Intel doesn't preserve any of their past CEO's offices except Gordon Moore's, uh, they have preserved that office. And you would immediately get a goosebump if you walk into that office. It's an open office. There's no closed door. Intel doesn't have a closed door system at all. Uh, and you know, know that very well. Gordon's is also an open office, but you can literally see that all those those, those fabs, those, those milestone processors are all lying on that wall. And literally one, one desk where he used to sit and define the defining moments of the of the of the of the journey of semiconductors. You literally get a goosebump. The next one I got is right at the main door of uh, the RNB building, the Robert Noyes building. I was walking out. I saw a very senior old gentleman with his wife coming in, and he was kind of literally, you know, making his way slowly walking. In a second, I realized it was Andy Grove. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I shook my hand with him and I almost felt like this is the touch of God that, that, I, that I got inspired when my high school teacher said, don't you think the guys who built this chip is almost close to God? This was probably the very closest I could get to the, to the real sense and touch of God. And that was another defining moment in my life that I was so fortunate that I could uh, experience these two moments. So now, getting to your question on, um, uh, I think you were asking that what are the other companies that I worked on. Um, fortunately or unfortunately, I didn't work on too many companies before before starting my my own company full time. Uh, my career started at Synopsys. I was part of uh, Synopsys's uh, test automation R and D stuff, and then I switched to Intel. And um, I, at Intel, I was, you know, in various groups. My last stint where I left was I was one of the four architects of the Intel's first AI processor. Um, and, and by that time, uh, my own venture became so demanding that I, I had a, had a kind of private conversation with my wife that what should I do? Uh, because I couldn't really keep my two feet on two, two different boats. I had to choose one. And I, I kind of reluctantly, gradually, eventually, also with a lot of excitement, chose the, the board that I'm in right now. So I, I only worked in uh, for Synopsys and Intel before doing uh, Life Plus full time. And then, so that's really, really fascinating. Um, you know, to be inspired by two 
iconic pioneering figures in the chip, uh, chip and semiconductor industry is it's quite remarkable. Um, I guess, uh, and, and that legacy continues even with people like John Hennessy, who's yes. now uh, chair of Alphabet, right? And um, uh, creating this risk architecture, uh, rather uh, from CIS to sort of re reduce instruction set yes. kind of uh, uh, way of thinking. So uh, again, uh, simply remarkable. And what maybe the audience doesn't realize is that semiconductors are actually the foundation of everything. <laughs> everything is really built exactly. on semiconductors. Exactly. Exactly. People sometimes get too fascinated with the algorithms and its vast applications, but nothing would have been possible if the backbone semiconductors did not progress to this level that we have today. And the fact that you worked then on um, embedding AI kind of capability within chips and and that's deep acceleration and deep learning came because of GPUs. Now, NVIDIA has been the beneficiary of yes. that to a large extent, but, and now other companies are involved, even uh, Microsoft and Google and others and, and AMD and uh, Intel, of course, they, they've doubled down IBM and so on, but uh, really NVIDIA has been the, uh, the, the beneficiary. So, uh, you had your feet in in two camps, right? You you were in the sort of the fortune company camp, and then you started this company called Life Plus, and you had to make a choice. Now, tell me, what is Life Plus? You're the CEO and founder of Life Plus, or right. co-founder of Life Plus. What is Life Plus? In one single word, Life Plus is uh, the focus of Life Plus is to build a platform for every individual who is or has suffered from a chronic illness like diabetes or hypertension or any cardiovascular disease or respiratory disease a lot of burden is on you you are always worried that am i managing my condition well this is not a condition that you will die tomorrow but say still i mean it's a it's a big problem you have to take medications you have to manage multiple things otherwise you will be on a downward path so this burden we really want to eliminate from people's hand in people's mind. The way it should work is you wear a simple wearable device like I'm wearing this watch and this device will track your glucose, your blood pressure, your heart rate, heart rhythm, respiration, oxygen saturation continuously without any involvement from you. And this data will go to your mobile app and then it will go to your cloud. And from cloud in real time, we are sending it to the clinics. So your loved ones can see your data in real time. That was, remember, that was my primary objective with my grandma's illness, that I wanted to track her primary vitals in real time, sitting in New York when she was in India. So that problem has been addressed, that we can look into the data in real time, sitting anywhere. It could be the loved ones, it could be the caregivers, it could be your clinic. So as a person, suffering from a chronic disease, you don't need to worry about it. You are completely covered. You are, we, our goal is to give you the peace of mind that, that is completely missing. So that is basically the fundamental objective behind building a, a, a product and a platform that will track your primary biomarkers continuously, non-invasively, without any user involvement, and, and, and share the data in real time with your audience. So, you know, um, 
biomedical innovation is an interest of mine. And in fact, I sit on the leadership board of a group called the Terrasac Institute for Biomedical Innovation. So, and, and I've always had an early interest in sensing devices and chip technology. And so I can see the value of what you're doing. And then I guess the question is, how does it compare against when you do other means uh, or more the traditional means of glucose monitoring and blood pressure and, and heart rate and some of the other things that you're monitoring? How does it compare, compare uh, against those existing traditional techniques? And the other thing is, is um, and the second question is, you know, I've got a ultra mm. uh, from Apple and it does a lot. How do you compete? Uh, and for example, it does heart rate and all of these other things. It doesn't do glucose or uh, blood pressure, but I, I no doubt they're working on it. So how do you how do you compete against uh, people like Apple? So I think you had two questions. One is more on um, uh, your first question was more on um, if I remember it correctly. Um, Sorry, can you please repeat your first question. Second question is against Apple, and that's a marketing business question that I will answer. But what was the first question, uh, Stephen? Yeah, how accurate is your... Oh, yes, the accuracy. Yes, so that's a great question. And that's where we wanted to show our sincerity from the get-go. And that's one of the differentiation against all sorts of different wearable devices that you see in the market. And, and many come with many tall claims but what they really lack is substantial clinical data backing. So first thing, because we had a doctor in our team from the beginning, we decided we're gonna go the path. By the way, this is not a consumer tech. This is not a consumer device. We designed it from the get-go to be a medical device, but we wanted to make it, make it look like a very socially acceptable looking medical device, not a clunky uh, kind of medical device that we, we all have seen too many times. We wanted to make it a socially acceptable looking medical device, but what we wanted is partner with the with the topmost clinical research organizations. Like we partner with Mayo Clinic, we partner with Stanford, we partner with Cleveland Clinic. We did many clinical studies, IRB controlled studies, collected data against the traditional medical devices like a Abbott or Dexcom continuous glucose monitor or finger stick glucose monitor from Roche or LiveScan, or, you know, or, or a blood pressure cuff, uh, like Omra. So we compared against this, so we, we did a 66 subject, uh, diabetic subject study against uh, Dexcom's continuous monitor in a, in a metabolic research institute in San Diego. We, are, we, we did three clinical studies on inpatients, one in Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, one in India and another one in Malaysia uh, with the government hospital. And we collected a lot of data against finger stick, more than 500 patients, admitted patients, against finger stick, against cuff, against oximeter, all these parameters. So then we analyzed this data. So we used part of the data in training our model and use the other part in validating and, and reporting the accuracy. So we are right now, for the glucose, we are within 15% of the CGM or the finger stick. For the blood pressure, systolic and diastolic both, we are within 10% of the cuff. And I wanted to bring in another flavor to the accuracy matrix uh, in this context is that the, the blood pressure cuff or finger stick glucometer, they are discrete data point devices. 
So they have certain accuracy expectations. You are not going to preak multiple times. You're going to preak probably one or two times a day at most. Whereas we are collecting data continuously. So the power of statistics, the power of volume will come into picture. So we can afford to be slightly deviated from the gold standard, but still attain our goal because of the power of longitudinality of the data. So that's what our approach and we have been deep in conversation with FDA as a matter of fact, both for blood glucose for our indication uh, and for blood pressure. FDA has recommended us to take the Denovo route, which is a novel device route. The, the onus of that is that you, you are literally trailblazing a new path for the regulatory uh, uh, path. But the advantage is you work with FDA, you define the special controls. You define a new product code for regulation. So, which is, we feel within our forte because we are scientists. We know how to define these statistical metrics, which are, you know, the statistical metrics that have been defined for the discrete data point device, devices have to be morphed to take into account the, the longitudinality of the data and the advantage it delivers. So what is what are the new bounds that are clinically acceptable? The, the, the clinical community weights into it. From statistics point of view, we also weight into it. And then we define those. So that's how we are, we are driving our project, working with FDA on defining the special controls both for glucose and blood pressure. Right now we are in a 200 patient study at Mayo Clinic where we are switching from our current algorithm compares against CAF. And as you know, CAF is also a little bit deviated from the invasive arterial line, which is considered the, the clinical gold standard. So right now we are in a study in Mayo Clinic, 200 patients. We are collecting data of our restored PPG photoplethysmogram against the invasive arterial line waveform. And we are moving further accurate, closer to the actual arterial line blood pressure. And we also published our initial results in two leading conferences on, 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 um, on diabetes and hypertension. Now we are looking into our first journal publication. And that's basically on the accuracy side, that's, that's our uh, you know, overall comment that we are very deep into clinical studies, reporting results and moving forward. Uh, on, with, uh, with FDA, we already crossed the pre-submission stage. And that's how we got their guidance recommendation. And we started working with them closely on defining the new product code for these two parameters. And we are expecting the submission to FDA by first quarter next year. So I, we can keep our fingers crossed and knock on wood, we can tell you by, by second half of next year, we will have a class two regulated, truly non-invasive continuous device, multifunction device, which is glucose and blood pressure. FDA also asked us to uh, report the accuracy of heart rate, which they don't for other variables like the Apple Watch or Fitbit or Samsung. Uh, FDA applied their, uh, the, you know, uh, the, the, the discretionary oversight that, you know, as long as you use it for wellness purposes, you don't need to report clinical studies. But for us, they asked us to report the heart rate accuracy also because it's used in medical purpose. So that's what we have been taking forward and that's our accuracy approach now i'll stop for a minute if you have any kind of question on the accuracy side before i go to the the business side uh no um other than uh, and this ties into the business of course 
if you produce, uh, you're producing a, a continuous uh, monitoring, uh, non-invasive system, um, addressing areas that are not uh, widely addressed yet, you're, you're doing it. Um, so it's really a health related device rather than pure consumer. Then the question, and it's related to the business side is, you know, if it's a $10,000 device, then, you know, you might as well just use traditional technique. If, if, even though you have the advantages, it's non-invasive and it's continuous monitoring. So I guess price point is also, and the ease in which you can scale this and manufacture it at, at a low price point, right? So. Exactly. That's that you are done right. That's exactly the path we have been choosing. And we are always aware of um, Apple or any other big consumer tech's uh, potential presence in the coming months and years in this space. And, uh, you know, this is a serious enough problem. We fully appreciate the fact that the, the big, big consumer tech companies will be looking into these problems uh, with the with the proper seriousness. And, you know, they will be delivering a very good solution. Where, but this market is big enough, um, Stephen, that we can coexist with Apple or Samsung or Fitbit or a product for, from Amazon, whoever it is, uh, primarily because of this price point question that you that you raised. Because the consumer tech, uh, the, the top products, they will operate in a prime kind of you know, price point. Whereas as a smaller company and for a targeted audience, we can operate at a, at a lower price point keeping a smaller gross margin with respect to our, you know, cogs, and we can still survive as a small company very well. We don't, we don't really need to get into like $500,000 device that it becomes kind of a serious problem from the price point point of view. I see. So um, it's an interesting um, company that you've uh, created and I, I can see the utility of what you're uh, mentioning and the continuing scene, uh, uh, continuous monitoring and it's non-invasive. I, I mean, and those, those are great value points and uh, and you're trying to set a price point that's competitive with some of the big tech companies as they are also addressing this area. Um, or I'm assuming they're addressing this area because they look at things um, <clears throat> years in advance, right? So right. Apple would be, uh, or Samsung would be uh, two of your main competitors uh, on the consumer side. Yes. Okay. So that's that's uh, really fascinating. I actually wanted to add one more uh, comment on this, is that as far as the scalability of the, of the business, we can either think of a medtech company doing a white label on our product. I'm giving some names, for example, it could be Medtronic or Abbott or Dexcom or Roche or LifeScan. One of them can do a white level and take it through their channels because as a, as an established medtech, they have all the, they have the entire army to take it to the, to the end users. That's one route and they will have their own price points and, and they will coexist with the consumer product uh, if they take it as a white level approach. Alternatively, if you think about the consumer white level, uh, the consumer tech, if once we get past FDA and once we prove the our our you know hardcore performance metrics of our algorithms, because we use a market existing sensor, so no, no innovation on the on the sensor. Although we have our own twelve patents, how to extend this sensor to do even better? But at the current with the current device, we use a market existing sensor. So all our IPs in algorithms, so we can. You know, once we prove the, our quality metrics, these big companies may also be interested in 
doing a license royalty based uh, play with our algorithms on their device. And we are absolutely open to those conversations as well. I see. So um, what you're saying then is the hardware is, is sort of readily available and your differentiation is the algorithms that you're uh, layering in on top of the hardware. And then in that case, then in some ways, the hardware, you can be agnostic of what the hardware is, right? Uh, because it's really the proprietary part is in your algorithms. And, yes. And of course, once it's uh, algorithm-based, then it's easier to scale, right? So yes. it's the application of the algorithm across uh, multiple devices. That's that's interesting. And then even that philosophy uh, that's embedded in your algorithms could be applied to other areas perhaps as well. Correct. So um, let's switch gears then. Um, so you you talked about how you got into this field, your work with Intel and others, and you're interested in chip technology and sensor technology driven from your experiences within your family. And then you founded a company and you're trying to differentiate that company and so on. Um, let's get into the future of the marketplace. Uh, you know, where do you see artificial intelligence and algorithms going? Uh, what are your views on um generative AI and particular, not the synthetic uh, data part of it, but on the large language models or large foundation models. Uh, where do you see that going? And then I'll stop there and then I'll ask some more questions. For example, where do you think chips are going? Oh, why don't we add that too? So, <laughs> uh, so where are algorithms going? Where is AI machine learning going? And where are chip technology? Where, where do you see that going in two to three years? Absolutely. And and uh, uh, if you don't mind, uh, Stephen, I mean, algorithms and the advance of AI is a very broad topic. And I want to restrict myself only within the space of uh, healthcare delivery, because that's that's the, the space that I I have been very closely associated with for the last several years and, and understand that better than I do in other applications of AI. So I would talk about a couple of things here. First of all, I personally feel it's a it's a great power that we have got over the last couple of decades, and the 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 power is really in the process of being unleashed. The power has not fully been utilized in the in the healthcare space yet. It's just starting. Honestly, we are in the, we are in the in the nascent phase of the application of AI in all possible areas, including healthcare. And what particularly I felt. Uh, that has a tremendous potential is that the medical doctors have all the knowledge that you need to properly treat uh, a, 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 an individual with an illness. What they lack and what they have been traditionally lacking is data. And 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 some easy inter see more data. Also, if someone has to manually look into the data that that takes all their time. So essentially longitudinal data and it's quick interpretation and presentation to accurate interpretation and presentation to the doctor is gonna tremendously help a doctor. Just giving a simple example from my own context, from my products context. Today, the general expectation if you are a, let's say if you are a pre-diabetic or an early stage diabetic, is that you will do an A1C blood test every three months. And your, your doctor will look at your blood test in January, again in April, and they will decide what is the medication dose that they're gonna give it to you. But what they're really missing is what's happening in the three months between the January and April. And if they have a lot of data and it's simple interpretation presented to them at the time you are walking into the clinic next time, 
they can much further titrate that medication dose. You can do much better with that dosing. One aspect is your own lifestyle changes that AI will start recommending from cloud with this data. Second aspect is that the further titration of the medication. These two things combined will deliver you a much longer, happier, healthier life than 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 what we are expect you know experiencing today as the as the as the patients. Um, that is one aspect. Then another aspect is um, when you talk about the generative AI and, and large language models, the, the recent conferences on the healthcare uh, field, different conferences that I attended, I saw a tremendous exuberance within the healthcare community, the doctors, because what used to take them a substantial part of their daily routine, like taking notes, interpreting, uh, and, and basically getting it to the clinical decision-making point is largely getting covered by the, the, the large language models. Well, like many other spaces in healthcare, this is gonna really transform most of the time-consuming, wasted and, and, and mundane stuff to, to, the, to the blink of your eye. And, and that's gonna open up the time for the, for the doctors as well as the, the support staffs and they are going to do much more um, ingrained, you know, delivering the healthcare and the treatment and care to the individual because they don't need to work about this taking notes, processing, all those things. There are many other aspects of, of generative AI that we could get into, but in the interest of time, I'm going to shorten it now. The, the second question you had is that what the chips are going. Um, the chips are getting just like what we saw with the mobile revolution that you know arm core based approach came compared to the traditional cisc approach that intel had now with the advent of ai the you know the the architectural style that is particularly suitable for ai computation is really advancing very quickly rapidly and the next movement so that that architectural style changes changes started with the with the server side first so the the cloud servers were becoming more and more AI savvy, AI, AI focused, thanks to NVIDIA and other companies. But now the next movement has started that a wearable processor, how can it host age computation, age AI computation on the device? Because in the first generation of the IoT devices, the sensor data was collecting at the field, but was raw, taken raw to the cloud. And all AI was happening in cloud, and the, the 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 interpretation was coming back to you. In the next generation, in the generation that we are in now, and and it's proliferating, the AI will happen on the IoT device itself. So on the healthcare space, the we do our our deep learning for the glucose or blood pressure right on the device. And 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 this chip is not really the the best chip for doing that. But I see that new chips are coming from some, even some startups that are much more focused on AI-based computation, even completely new technology like, like magnetic memory and uh, in-memory computation that's happening, which is very uh, you know, uh, conducive for the AI type of computational tasks. So a tremendous amount of research and innovation and productization has been happening on age computation on IoT devices, and that's going to proliferate like any other field, 
into the healthcare field and will will really transform the way we live our life honestly i'm extremely bullish about that so let me just uh, summarize what I, I hear you're saying. You're saying on the algorithm side, uh, because of this continuous uh, data flow and the ability to analyze it, you're getting very um, accurate or uh, more precise precision and personalized medicine, basically. And, and the fact that you could manage um, the medication much better uh, because of this continuous data flow, um, which is being created uh, um, by these uh, or produced by these uh, non-invasive continuous uh, monitoring wearable devices. So that's helping really on the algorithmic side. Also on the algorithmic side, saying that in the healthcare field, there's a lot of excitement now in the possibilities of uh, doing the note-taking and the uh, and assisting as a companion, as a co-pilot in essence, on the analysis uh, when doctors are meeting with patients and then looking at uh, what, you know, what are sort of the possible uh, diagnostic aspects, but really the doctor's still overseeing it all heavily integrated, but it can save time, right? And then on the chip side, you're saying, particularly on the edge computing, uh, edge being, uh, you don't have to be connected to the cloud. You can have the processor uh, matched at the sensor on the wearable somewhere out there on a mobile basis and, and not having to communicate with the cloud and that processing occurring. And because advances in chip technology, for example, uh, 3D chip architecture or um, RAM, resistive RAM uh, integrated and high bandwidth with the CPU, but that could be in a edge uh, uh, chip device. And a lot of these kind of sense, uh, systems on a chip um, complexes that are coming out there, but that can be, um, put into a wearable, all of that is an accelerating and producing a lot of uh, positive outcomes. Did I miss anything or just kind of no. summarize what I'm hearing? No, this was a great summary of what I said, absolutely. So a lot of, lot of, um, lot of new topics to be very bullish on uh, where we are right now. Okay, so now let's get into maybe on the philosophical side. Um, do you, you know, there's there's this idea that the integration of new chip technologies, even neuromorphic chip technologies, uh, 3D chip architectures, and that's driving a lot of what's happening out there. And then you have this really rapid revolution occurring with large foundation models. Do you think then that um, we'll be getting into more AGI or artificial general intelligence where it's not human, but it's comparable in many respects and maybe will even exceed some of the things we can do. And that will be like a parallel kind of evolution <clears throat> occurring on the machine side. Uh, where do you see that going? I think, you know, the, the, you know that, the, that is the next extension of the research where basically um, we, you know, the, the automation and decision-making and intelligence uh, is getting to a point that, um, uh, that uh, you know so the human mind always kind of starts thinking about what next and and basically as a natural tendency we are also thinking how we can build a machine that can literally think like a human and make decisions uh, on the go and and considering many different signals many of many noise factors confounding factors and i think that research will continue uh, of course, there is a philosophical angle to it that how how much power will will be give it give to machine. I mean, uh, there is an there is an age old 
dichotomy and, and the debate that whether we, we, we would ever let machines become compatible in their intelligence to us and will that, will that cause uh, some some real kind of uh, uh, you know like a worrisome situations so I think at, at that level you know the research will continue but at that you know when it gets closer to uh, a machine intelligence getting uh, parallel to human intelligence I think uh, it is it will not be in the hand of the scientists it will be in the hand of the the government and the regulatory bodies and and the policy making will happen at the government level at the maybe at the international governance level and and that's where ultimately it will be kind of guided and controlled and 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 kind of carved out but 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 researchers like us will always explore new possibilities I did a, a two-part interview with Philip Wong. Um, he's at Stanford. In fact, he won an IEEE award for his work in semiconductors. And uh, he was on sabbatical where he was chief scientist for Taiwan Semiconductor mm -hmm. and, and continues as chief scientist, uh, chief scientist as an advisor. And he talked about a uh, meeting certain, uh, kind of by chance with, with a doctor and this idea of being able to have a chip within a cell hmm. and and because really the scaling of chips is so small today it can exist within a cell and then in real time being doing monitoring and uh, maybe even being able to help that cell in some way and do it wirelessly uh, and that's kind of like um has this almost element of si um, science fiction and yet He's working on this now. So do you see this um, evolution? Of, because you, you're, a, a, you're a semiconductor expert. Do you see evolution of this sort of nanochip technologies, even robots in our nanorobots in our bodies and they're, and they're seamlessly exist with us and, and maybe through th thermal mechanism, they can be self-powered in some way. Um, Absolutely. And, and do you I, see that I, in the near term or or long term or what do you no, no, I think the, the the research has already started as you as you mentioned about Dr. Ong already. Uh, I think the research is already undergoing. I, I envision the timeline to be at least ten years to to get there. That uh, that you have a self powered uh, nano robot that pretty much kind of can stay within your cell, and and these things can do really wonder because literally one could extrapolate the application of such a uh, you know nano robotic chip in, in in curing cancer something like that right you know deep you know they can they can even repair a a a, a, a rogue dna which is at the root of a, a cancer proliferation so this type of applications are are really um uh, welcoming and they, this will happen may take 10 years uh, that's my uh, own kind of a timeline. Uh, I would be happier to see it happening within five years. But um, so an interesting connection between the last topic we discussed and this one. I think, you know, when it comes to we as human race developing the technology and innovation and science, this is how we should guide ourselves. For example, Personally, I think we should not make a, a, a chip which is as intelligent as a human and can really act against human. 
rather we should advance as much as possible which can be still under the control of a human being but can go at the even at the cell level at the molecular level and do its job and do its job so well that it couldn't even be you know thought possible like 10 years or 20 years ago and um, one example that comes to my mind on, on an application I, I recently met a, a, a top uh, you know, scientist from University of Pittsburgh, who is also in our advisory board, uh, Dr. Sen. He is a regenerative medicine expert. And what, what he does is uh, he has developed an innovative technology, a cell that you can implant on a, on a wound site, and that will regenerate the, 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 the cells in that wound site, and it will repair the wound site. So, so a, a close connection to, and this is a, this is actually an electronics technology. This is this is a chip. This is almost a molecular chip that he that he imparts into the wound site and and repaired that wound site. So, um, this type of applications will really work well, um, uh, and 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 th this is where we are headed. It will repair cancer cells. It will repair DNA. It will repair wound sites. It will do wonder. Uh, in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years for the treatment of, of, of human diseases. So it sounds like we're heading towards a remarkable um, inflection point in humankind. And because innovation is happening so rapidly today, um, do you think that we can even forecast 20 years out now um, because of quantum computing, the evolution in chips, the evolution in biotechnology and algorithms and so on. It's, it's just, if you look at the papers that are dropping, even on the large foundation models, large language models, diffusion models, they're like just continuous flow, right? Absolutely. And you even see the big tech leaders when they're interviewed, they're, they're, they're saying it's it's just mind boggling in essence. I mean, that's my word for it, but yes. of, of all of the innovation that's occurring. So do you think we you can even predict what's going to be like 10 years from now? No, it will be very hard to predict for anyone sitting today, uh, even the, the best scientists of our country, um, because it is it is proliferating and growing at a rate that it is beyond anyone's imagination at this moment. But one thing we can say for sure, next 20 years, the, the computing science and, and, and electronics industry and, 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 uh, and in technology will see wonders in, in every aspect of human life. And, and that will transform the way we live today. In next 20 years, it will literally transform the way we live. And um, uh, I think, you know, one other aspect that I forgot mentioning. So there is this AI, LLM, all these aspects. There is also this many decades, even like century old theoretical question in computer science, when the P will become equal to NP, right? Yeah. And will it ever become, uh, I think, the, some of the latest computing paradigms and computing uh, architectures and, and new technology has been driven toward that as well. And when that happens, I, I'm, I'm actually bullish. I predict that computing architecture wise, we will get to a point in next 20 years, maybe uh, that we will we'll see a P equal to NP situation. And then all those computations that in our theory of computation book that we've considered NP and not solvable in deterministic time will be solved. And that will cause another uh, explosion in, in our advancement. 
and and, and I, I see that that's coming that's that's nearing so i i'm totally bullish about that possibility as well right so uh, maybe for the audience not all um, audience members are mathematicians or computer scientists or engineers and they may not know what you mean by p and mp and so on so can you define what that means yes of course so there are two classes of algorithms. Uh, one is called the P or polynomial class of algorithms. And the other is called the non-deterministic polynomial class. And what these two classes mean is that for the polynomial classes of algorithms, you can solve that problem in polynomial time. And, and for the non-polynomial, non-deterministic polynomial class of algorithms or NP class of algorithms, you cannot deterministically solve that problem in polynomial time. So uh, the so far the theory is that P and NP are two different classes. They are not they are not same class, and that's why once an algorithm gets defined and puts in the bucket of NP, becomes a, a immense immediately becomes an object of immense interest to the computer scientists. That how can I solve that in quicker and quicker time? But still, it's non-deterministic polynomial. Uh, to give an example, uh, let's say if you have been given um, you know, let's say I tell you that I give you five letters, A, B, C, and D, and E, right? And I have a specific combination of those letters in my mind. And I tell you, I ask you that, can you tell me out of these five letters, A, B, C, D, and E, what is the combination that I have in my mind? Can you, can you answer that? You cannot answer that theoretically in, in polynomial time because you have to consider all combinations and one of them will be matching with my my own uh, you know answer so this is this is a simple example of a non deterministic polynomial algorithm so this type of algorithms will be only solved when there is a computer architecture which is evaluating all the combinations at the same instant of time in parallel and getting to the answer that kind of machine doesn't exist today but i think we are heading toward those type of machines, which will which will really make it like near polynomial time, uh, and and then then we'll have a solution, and that will cause wonder by itself because there there are so many fundamental problems that sit in the bucket of the non-deterministic polynomial class, they will be solved in polynomial time. So now let's look at possible approaches to this. So. Um... Are you, are you talking about uh, electron spin in semiconductor technology where you can maybe get um, entanglement and superposition occurring? Are you talking about quantum information science and technology? Quantum Both of them. Are you talking about um, uh, really sort of the where breed of deep learning and, and sort of the continuation on the algorithm side where maybe these um, large language models are so massive, we don't even know what's going on, but they're evaluating billions of things at the same time right more than a human being can do and and yes. uh, it's uncovering things that we just could not even conceive of when when they're applied to different problems are you talking about those as examples and then can you go a little bit deeper what that i would i would do a little bit deeper and that's a great uh, question that you raised and this is my philosophical answer algorithms will keep on advancing will keep keep on making the computational time shorter and shorter but algorithm cannot alone solve the p equal to np question. Philosophically, it, algorithms can never alone solve that. Only a 
a new uh, you know uh, fabric a new new paradigm basically from the hardware perspective can solve that problem because if algorithms could alone solve it then this problem would have been solved years ago theoretically classically these are two different buckets just algorithms cannot solve these two and can cannot kind of combine these two buckets together there there can be a physical innovation uh, in building a, a physical system that can make these two classes come almost close to each other almost overlap to each other so yes algorithms will advance 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 like llm and everything but end of the day you need something like an electronic screen or or, or quantum computing or, or all these the completely new uh, you know orthogonal uh, computing paradigms computing architectures that are coming you know those will have the potential to ultimately bridge the gap and then you know we've both alluded to quantum computing and 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 really the the sort of the foundation of quantum computing is parallelism right uh, through superposition and entanglement it can it can work on multiple that's exactly paths right. at the same time right so and 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 that was the reason that why quantum computing or electron spin those kind of mechanisms have been you know have been picked up and are getting explored because we need tremendous amount of parallel computing parallelly evaluating different choices so that you can get to the the best choice at the same output point not in sequence because once you think of sequence <laughs> when all bed is off you have to do it in parallel yeah and i i guess the the famous problem would be the traveling salesman problem right yes. you've you got a traveling salesman visiting 200 cities what's the optimum path and you can't do that on a classical computer absolutely yeah. not it's, it's not possible have, Yes, in computer science, we have we have dealt with that problem so many times, even in circuitry, even in designing an electronic circuit with the minimal number of layer overlaps and stuff. It's, it's the same, another variant of the TSP, the traveling salesman problem. And we have come up with very good heuristics, very good kind of close to polynomial approximations, but we've never hit a polynomial solution. It's not possible with the current computing architecture. We have to get to the next computing architecture, which will solve that in parallel, in, in, in polynomial time. Yeah, and I guess there's this whole idea of quantum inspired algorithms, right? So quantum computing uh, people uh, solve some kind of, uh, or show some promise. And then the algorithmic side says, well, we'll, we'll use a quantum inspired algorithm that runs on classic computers. And guess what? We can actually solve that and polynomial time, right? Yes, oh. yes, that's, and I, I tell you, Stephen, once that happens, and I'm expecting that in next 10 years, 10 to 15 years at most, this is gonna open up, this <laughs> is gonna create a riot in computer science. Yeah. Because the problems that are considered to be hard uh, and, and, and not, not solvable in polynomial time will all be solved and we'll see a very different world. I mean, so many, mm, hundreds of thousands of applications of those NP problems will come out right. in different spaces. And every single one of them will probably create a startup of its own. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so so we, are, we are literally stepping into a very bullish time for, for computer science in general uh, in our lifetime. 
even even on the uh, classical computing side, we have exascale computing, and it was thought at one time exascale wasn't even possible. <laughs> and in fact, if you watch the old Star Trek shows, you have data, and and what, some of those shows data actually quantified the amount of calculation this Android could do. Well, actually, our computers are actually could do more. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I would I would allude to the my own problem that we have been working on uh, in this startup. There's non-invasive measurement of glucose or prediction of glucose. We call prediction because we use deep learning. There were there have been so many failed efforts in the last 25 years. And and people often come to me and say that there, there are so many failures. Why are you still working on it? <laughs> I said, that's what you know, in every single field, that's what that's how we have advanced. Right. Every single field has advanced through many a long history of failure and still people haven't given up and that's why we have got a solution in every single space so yeah it's yeah. like ai and all the deep and all of the uh winters that the ai has gone through right? that's true that's true that's true and a, a tremendous advancement has happened on the capability of the sensor the miniaturization of the technology right then the computing side right i mean a lot of noise that was not filterable before now are filterable and then the power of ai is really getting unleashed on very noisy very low snr data we deal with very low signal to noise ratio data all the time which was not there you know people didn't even know how to deal with that low snr tell you you know frankly we deal with the data where we have only 0.1% glucose information right that kind of low signal to noise ratio data was not even, people couldn't even think of dealing with that data and come up with certain reasonable accuracy, reasonable performance, because it's not just possible. But today we are getting there. It's, it's getting possible. And we'll, you know, the, the community will advance further in the next five years. So it's all possible. It's, it's, we are, we are get, heading in the very right direction in every single, uh, uh, you know, aspect of computer science. Yeah, there is no yo, uh, or there is no no. It's a yes with conditions. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Which and even if it's not possible today, the the scientific community shouldn't give up in pursuit of uh, you know trying to solve that problem. So LOD, you you know, we explored a lot of different areas, and um, you know, it's just a fascinating time we live in. And. This is to our final question. What's, what's your recommendations to our audience? My recommendation, I think what I, because we are all part of a, a very coherent science focused community. And what I was um, just alluding to in, in the last minute is that we should never give up <laughs> on the face of a hard problem. Mm -hmm. we, should, we should look into the problem. Our scientific mind will be put together to figure out what are the current obstacles how to how to you know eliminate one obstacle at a time and and still keep our focus towards solving that problem that's how we have advanced over the last 100 200 300 years and our race will advance keep on advancing that way yeah and i guess then living in the uh, boundary layers right stretch goals um stepwise incremental um, uh, refinement absolutely and that's how you create innovation and invention, right? So absolutely, absolutely. I just uh, to think of one quick uh, topic, uh, like how innovative people are, 
uh, you know, like about 10, 12 years back when I was considering a postdoctoral position after my PhD, there was once uh, a very well-known professor from Purdue. He was looking at a new paradigm called imprecise computing, which is so paradoxical to even think of, right? Would you ever think of doing computing imprecisely? <laughs> I never taught in school for that, right? But that whole area opened up because he found out a very constrained computing medium where the, the full potential, full power of computation is not possible. And that led him to thinking that how much precision I can lose and I can still attain the near perfect target. And that, that led to imprecise computing. So that's exactly, I mean, in, in, in response to your last comment that the human mind has always found how to navigate through very difficult path and still still come closer and closer to a solution. Yeah, and I guess that speaks to this uh, idea of grit, you know, perseverance and perseverance and having some optimism as well, right? So especially during these uh, interesting times we live in right now. So yes. Alodeep, uh, thank you for coming in and sharing so many of your deep insights uh, with our audience. Thank you very much for having me and it's my honor to, to have this interaction with you. Thank you for listening to The Brand Called You videocast and podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website, www.tbcy.in, to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for The Brand Called You.